This is Cry in the Arch, oral histories of the St. Louis music scene. I'm Caleb True, and with me is Jim Fitzpatrick, and together, through interviews and in-depth discussion, we explore St. Louis music. On this episode, we talk to Sean O'Connor of the legendary math rock band Yowie. It's hard to put into words just how incredible the band Yowie is. They are very talented, they are hardworking, they are innovative and meticulous. Whenever I try and describe them, and the influence they have had upon St. Louis music and math rock worldwide, I quickly run out of adequate superlatives. I really don't know what to say. They are a monument and a testament to the richness of St. Louis underground, experimental, and punk music. None of their music, I should mention, is improvised. Let's get right into it, shall we? In particular, for certain sort of strains of music, um, St. Louis uh, was disproportionately uh, represented uh, internationally during that time. And it's kind of funny, like uh, when I've gone overseas, um, people know St. Louis uh, more than you would think. <laughs> um, and they usually know it from like certain bands that were active somewhere around that time. And At um, least the weirdos that I talk to when I'm overseas, yeah. Uh, and you've toured Europe with Yowie. Uh, or did you tour with the Conformists too? I did not tour Europe with the Conformists, okay. but I toured with them. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh, like, when did you start doing music in in St. Louis? Ah man, um, I uh, played in a thrash band that played, I don't know, house shows a lot when I was a teenager and just starting drums for probably ten years. Um, and we we moved up to good old. I don't know if you've ever heard stories of Club 367. No. Nope. Nor have I. Nope. It might have been a slight generational thing. So it's more of a '90s, <laughs> more of a '90s thing. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the good uh, metal, punk, hardcore shows that came through town uh, went to Club 367, especially after Bernard's Pub and stuff like that closed down. Mm-hmm. So that was. That was right up the street from uh, where we were living in Jennings, and uh, that was a regular haunt of ours. Yeah, so I've been playing on and off. I would say if you count club shows as where it becomes important or something since about <laughs> 90, 91 or something. Okay. What was the name of your thrash band? Uh, we were called Attica. Attica? Attica. Just like nice. the the prison in New York with the, uh, you know, well-known riot. Do any recordings exist of Attica? Yes. Uh, recently, someone found a cassette at the bottom of a drawer. So it's like a super lo-fi recording of our band practice. We played in a storage shed. If you would like me to send it to you, I absolutely will. Yeah. Uh, so what was the thrash scene like in, in the early 90s in St. Louis? It was quite spirited. There was uh, quite a feeling of, of scene, for lack of a better term. You know, that happens sometimes, and it seems to coalesce around venues and a few bands. Yeah. Uh, at that time, there were a few, Club 367, Bernard's Pub, a couple others I could name, uh, where, where people would go, like, every Friday night or Saturday night, what's going on? I don't know. We're going we're gonna to go down to this club or that club and just see what's happening, nice. which is really kind of a relic of a bygone era in a lot of ways. Like, now it's 
what time is your band going on? Listen to their SoundCloud or their Bandcamp or whatever, and then sort of triage and prioritize how much of this experience I want to have. <laughs> yeah. Triage is a good word. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's super accurate. The technology piece and the ability to like kind of cater and like cherry pick your evening, you know, as opposed to just like t going to check out a scene at Club 367 or Bernard's Pub, you know, and you're in for what you're in for. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And it, uh, I, I don't know, like uh, I, I feel like such an old fogey sometimes, but I'll get those people trying to send me Facebook messages and I'll be like, are you guys going on at nine or nine fifteen or whatever? And I'm just like, man, <laughs> just, just come, just come to the club, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then there's so many different variables, especially if there's a touring band yeah. where, and it, people act like I'm a jerk about it. And I'm just like, I, honestly, I can, I'll give you an answer, but I'll be guessing a little bit. Like totally. I have no idea what's going to happen. I think one of my favorites I've experienced and I'm sure you all have is people show up and they see that you're not going to play for like a little bit. And then they're like, I'm going to go grab a drink or get some food or whatever. Uh, and then they miss your set and they come back and they're <laughs> like, what, what, <laughs> what? Did yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I still had to play music, <laughs> you know, like I still had to play my set, even though you're getting a burrito down the street. So, um, how did you get from uh, your thrash band to, uh, to Yowie? Well, um, there were several, intermediate evolutionary steps i guess mm -hmm. between them mm -hmm. where i started um after a while i started to find that it the the genres started to become a little too uh confining yeah um and i yeah i found that like a lot of bands um took what was originally sort of like very dramatic and emotional about those extreme types of music and just sort of like homogenizing and commodifying them. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I started hearing what sounded to me like um, rules that they were employing and sort of like, now this is where you do the breakdown and this is where, you know, like sometimes I'd hear a song for the first time and like I already know exactly how the song is going to go from the first few bars, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that just really felt um, like the opposite of artistic expression to me after a while. Totally. Yeah. So I guess uh, what I started to do was try to kind of figure out what are these internal rules? Like, how do I sort of intuitively know exactly where this song I've never heard before is going to go? Like, mm. how do I how can I tell that? Um, and I started to just sort of try to make lists of what the what the rules were about it that people were following, even in these non-conventional, uh, non-conformist styles of music, still they were highly rigid in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I started making, just trying to make observations about um, what were the rules they were still following and then just purposefully liberate myself from them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just started playing around with trying to uh, just mess around with the way that that song structures went um, and then the each constituent part of, of song structures. So I had a bunch of bands that like kind of did some relatively mediocre or tepid version of what Yowie was going to be. Like usually what, what would happen is the other players in the band would say something like, okay, well we can put like a weird part in you know or whatever like <laughs> yeah um and that was usually pretty unsatisfying to me <laughs> yeah just the one little weird part 
Everybody like, ready for the weird part? <laughs> Here it comes. This yeah. for Sean. That's right. Our drummer made us do this. And they all we apologize. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah, totally like like you've heard this with like prog rock bands, right? Where they'll have like a yeah. super normal <laughs> verse and chorus. And then like after the second chorus, they'll be like, and by the way, here's the shit that we find interesting. Bear with us for a minute. And then we'll get back to the part that you can sing along with or whatever, you know? <laughs> yep more and more it feels like it's turning into a type of like folk music like blues or something where it's like there's like just a few kinds of songs that you make yeah you know yeah and uh and it's very traditionalist and um the original spirit of it it seems like got lost and then we just had a bunch of people sort of replicating who their favorite bands were sort of and and a lot of times, honestly, kind of following blues rock-ish rules, just playing blues rock faster and with distortion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, it just started to get really tedious to me. How did you find people uh, to improve thrash? A lot of times I got in disputes. In fact, one of my good friends who uh, I was in my first band with, like we had like a huge fight over this. This is so dumb, but this is really a thing that used to happen where Essentially, I got sort of like ousted for not being metal enough because <laughs> I was really into the Dead Kennedys and like punk and stuff. And I would say like, no, I'm not going to like limit. I'm not going to like wear the jean jacket and uh, only <laughs> listen to metal. And by the way, we could take this like this song could get way more heavy if we did this or we did that. And it would like break a metal rule. And then essentially... We, I ended up like leaving that band because I was breaking metal rules where there was like sort of like fealty to like your identity in the scene. And that included like the dress code and what bands you listen to and the song structures and et cetera. I'm ashamed to say this, but uh, I was almost in a new metal band when I was 15 and it was the same kind of situation although thrash metal is way better than new metal but uh i remember bringing in a riff that had a bunch of octave chords in it <laughs> and my friend grabbed my guitar from my hand and he was like i don't want you wasting your talent on this punk rock bullshit <laughs> and and then i like told him i refused to like you know follow the rules which for <laughs> new metal it's like drop d and that's about it but like <laughs> Uh, and no octave chords, I guess. Um, but yeah, I quickly left that band. Yeah, it, it almost is a ridiculous caricature of itself. Most people would find that ridiculous, so they won't say it out loud, yeah. but they still mm -hmm. follow them. Oh, man. Yeah, oh, totally. They just know that it just sounds adolescent, so they will they will not pledge public fealty to, to those rules. <laughs> yep. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it's just a, a terrible feature of human beings is that <laughs> when we when we create a new group including the group of nonconformists we start making rules about that group totally yeah yeah interesting we suck <laughs> we suck dude yeah. <laughs> it's true. i don't yeah. disagree with you how many bands did you go through before you could before you found a group that would uh accept uh this uh sort of a more yaoi like or a more just um open-minded compositional structure oh i would say th well three or four um there was one intermediary group uh that we tried 
we we some of us tried and some of us fought about trying uh and our we were called generica mm-hmm. um and uh i think our claim to fame was that we opened for gore one time sick dude that's pretty sweet <laughs> yeah it was like on halloween like in the late 90s i think but uh that was that was as far as we got was we opened for gore and then soon after i think we broke up and that had like a lot of shit that like some people in the band it would be fair to say that several of us in the band were very enamored of like uh naked city mm. uh oh, yeah, yeah john zorn type of shit mm-hmm. where where there was like purposeful uh blurring of genres and uh kind of tongue-in-cheek jokes with uh with genre rules and compositional rules and so that was appealing at the time, but I lost my appetite for the tongue-in-cheek aspect of it pretty quick. It could become pretty novel. Yeah, it, it did feel like it was a novelty band after yeah. a while. I, there was a bunch of little bullshit here and there, but I think Captain Captain was the closest one. It kind of sort of turned into Yowie, honestly. The problem I had with them is like another aspect of the whole thing that I've got going on is they really insisted on having improvisational um, parts, hmm. and I, I really, really, really hate that. Interesting. I'm just not a fan of it. I don't generally. It's not that I hate improvisational music uh, as a as a rule. Yeah. I just personally, I suck at improv improvising. I'm secondly, I have been paired up with at shows probably several thousand over the years um, improvisational acts. And I've found probably about 20 or 30 of them uh, to be moving. And I've found a lot of them where I'm like, oh, my God, you are following the improvisational genre rule now. Yeah. And I know you guys are about to go to the thing where you're going to start playing the the rims and then you're going <laughs> to do the thing. You're going to do the thing on the ride symbol where you rub the stick over the top of it. And it sounds, <laughs> you know, like you're just about to do that. And then they do that. And um Again, it's like the true, I guess, spirit of it yeah. uh, I'm fine with. And then before you know it, I see people that are like, they're just like, they, it's like they're repeating the same, I'm going to use the term meme, mm-hmm. uh, but in in the classical sense of the term meme over and over again. And then, I don't know, we're like judging it on its uh, its resemblance to its platonic form. It's kind of what it feels like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like now that followed exactly what you're supposed to be doing with improv. And then it, I don't know, I just, I couldn't tolerate it. So Captain Captain kept insisting on um, improvisational parts, and I tried to go along with them as much as I could, mm-hmm. uh, and I, uh, a few times, and then I just said, I just can't do it. They essentially said, well, we're really moving in an improv direction, and so I said, okay, I'm out. Then the band just never did anything else. Uh, I feel like Yowie next to improv is really is a serious diminishment to what Yowie's doing. Yeah, I think you probably know uh, that there is a whole thing that happens. It's like a trope. Whenever someone writes something up about Yowie, there is an obligatory portion where they say something like, at first listen, this chaotic mix of things sounds like it is being improvised. Oh, but yeah. then, and, and then so I always kind of... That always hurts. If I had a soul, it would like wound it every time <laughs> yeah. that I have that I have to read someone clarify that, in fact, this is not improv- improvisational music. I feel like such a profound alienation from anyone who can <laughs> listen to that music and think that possibly it is improvised. 
Yeah. When I was in my teenhood and breaking out of sad indie rock emo stuff and started listening to more kind of uh, offshoots of hardcore, like post-hardcore, screamo-y, kind of chaotic stuff. Um, yeah. That was composed. But when I first heard it, I was like, these guys are just fucking hitting their guitars or whatever, you know? <laughs> and like, but but it was because my brain at the time couldn't comprehend of anything that didn't, I couldn't see myself playing on a guitar. So like my right. context, I had no context. Um, so uh, the advocate that I would play in, in your story is, is maybe your, your shit was blowing their minds so much that they couldn't comprehend it as being composed. That's what I always tell myself, man. They don't get it. They're just not sophisticated enough, and it's 100% it, on man. them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a part. I think there's a part of truth to that. Yeah. There, there are. Just... Um, I mean, there are like degrees of, of. I would say educated ears, or the you know something like that, where it's like, uh, a lot of people. I think a lot of the time don't understand what they're listening to when they listen to something that isn't straight up the radio. I just, uh, you know, I've heard so many shitty musicians say, oh, well, if people don't like it, it's because they're not sophisticated enough to grasp my brilliance that I have a, I have like a really hard time accepting that as, sure. as the answer, you know? Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a middle ground. I think there are people out there who are going to listen to Yowie and it's just never going to be worth it to them to try to make sense of it. Yeah, damn it. I missed, I missed the mark totally. I was going for like really commercially successful. Right. <laughs> and now I understand why. So uh, when did you start using a numerical shorthand for, uh, for composition? Uh, as soon as it became clear to me that uh, there was no way I was going to be able to uh, kind of hum along uh, what the like visualize what this part was going to sound like. Yeah. So, um, the, I mean, part of the issue is I just never learned anything about music formally. Yeah. So I just tried to make my own sense of, um, how it, like how I could organize it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what, by the time I had gotten to Yowie, um, I had gotten to the point where I was trying to play around with structures that I, I couldn't hear um how it sounded yet yeah. which usually usually in regular kind of rock bands you have some kind of idea of of what it's going to sound like or whatever like some of these things were entirely foreign and alien yeah um and so i would like back then it was a tape cas actual cassette deck and i would sit down there and you know write this string of numbers and accents out and then play it super slow a bunch of times and then like play it back, listen, make an alteration, hmm. you know, wipe it off the chalkboard, change a few things, go back and do it again, do it again until it started to sound more like the essence of what I was trying to communicate. Excellent. So yeah, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't uh, some genius idea that I had. I was just completely ignorant of music theory. But you also, you also name riffs or do you collect numbers and you'll name a riff too, right? Oh yeah. Once the riff, um, the part like kind of feels solid, mm -hmm. usually I'll name it. Yeah. And then ho hopefully by that time, I have some idea of how it goes. Yeah. Right? So at that point, hopefully I can uh, sort of translate the string of numbers to uh, just a, a, a shorthand name. And then I've got like a, a, a reference point for it. Did you ever consider that the fact that you don't have formal training might actually have helped a, a great deal in your ability to approach and execute this without hangups? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, it's sort of a double-edged sword, honestly. Um, One is that I never really learned to play the drums properly, and then the other is I never learned anything about music theory properly. The music theory uh, part of it, I think, was a double-edged sword. I didn't even know exactly what the rules about some of the compositions were that I was breaking. You guys know Alushatistas, right? Yes. Yeah. I was was talking to... Yeah, they're great. I was talking to Shane not too long ago, and he was he was writing up like a little blurb essentially for for us, and he described us as outsider art. And I <laughs> yeah. was like, "That's fair," and I I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but I think that's probably accurate. We're we're people who never went to music school, learned formal music, and are sort of like approaching these instruments in a in a foreign way, yeah. and. Uh, like like Jeremiah never played the guitar before Yowie, <laughs> never one time. Gorgeous. He never 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 touched one. You know, uh, <laughs> seriously, he was he was a keyboard player. Yeah, a- and um, he got a guitar that he borrowed from someone, and um, and like just forced himself to learn to play guitar for the band. Originally, it was just keyboard and drums, if you can imagine, <laughs> and uh, there were a lot of uh, sounds and effects that we could not get out of the keyboard. Well, also the keyboard's so limited because you don't have the between the between stuff. Yeah, after and we are... we live there a lot and yes. a lot of kind of string torture stuff that uh, is not really possible to do with a keyboard. Totally, yeah. I mean, you can you can play with that stupid little pitch bender, but that's so uh, played out. Yeah. Oh yeah. So what's what's Jim's deal? When did you? Yeah. What what is Jim's? And I don't mean Jim Fitzpatrick. What's uh, what's Blango of Jim's deal? <laughs> That's a big question, man. Here, I'll I'll tell you the origin story as it relates to me. At the time that we were starting this up and working on it, Jeremiah was um, he had gone to uh, like a recording audio recording school, like engineer thing, mm-hmm. and he was trying to make some money off of that. And he thought that the way to do that was like hip hop stuff. Yeah. So there was, there was a local, uh, studio and he hung out there all the time and was trying to sell beats to rappers and things like that, that he was producing. And he was like constantly down at the studio and we were trying out guitarist after guitarist after guitarist. And we just couldn't find anybody willing to be experimental enough with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one day, Jeremiah and I are in the basement writing some stuff and the guy who runs the studio calls and he's like, hey, you know how you're looking for people to do that weird shit you guys are trying to do? <laughs> he's like, there's a guy here right now. Um, and you may want to talk to him. And, and so we're like, well, why? And he's like, well, he's in the he, he insisted on recording an album in the bathroom. <laughs> and he's in the bathroom right now with uh, he's singing and playing the guitar while sitting on the toilet, and his right foot, he has a, uh, a kick drum, and his left foot, he has a, 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 a drumstick attached to another, like, <laughs> kick pedal that's hitting a snare. So he's playing, <laughs> he's just in the bathroom making this really weird shit by himself right now. So is that the sort of thing you're looking for? And uh, <laughs> And, and we're like, uh, I think we better talk to him and figure that out. And that was that was Jim. At some point, he decided he did not want to be identified on our music at all. So I think we should refer to him as uh, the last thing he told me he wanted to be called was Little Pumpkin. 
That's L-I-L apostrophe pumpkin. We were we were a very peculiar band for a number of reasons. Um, and especially when we were first starting out, there's a picture circulating around. We opened for Hella one time at mm-hmm. Creepy Crawl. Yeah. And so here's a, another thing that you may or may not know about Lil Pumpkin that took us years to figure out. So uh, he'd show up for band practice and he'd be wearing, let's say, corduroy blue jeans and like a shirt that has a picture of a Basset Hound puppy on it. He'd wear that and then we'd play again two days later and he'd be wearing it and we'd play again and he'd be wearing it and then he'd be wearing something different. And then he'd wear that for a few practices. And then you'd never see those clothes again. And it, I'm not usually a person who pays attention to people's clothes too much, but it's like, he's wearing like an oversized Basset Hound puppy, like 90, that has like a pocket at the bottom that looks like it's for like a large child. And he's just wearing that for several days, right? Yeah. So anyway, one time, he didn't tell us, but he had moved to Chicago. <laughs> Um, I I think he went to college in Chicago, but I'm not sure. Oh, my God. He he, he was never – that's why I said I hope he's not going to be upset about this because he's just never been uh, terribly uh, communicative with his his private life. Yeah. So we were like, hey, we have the show with Ruin set up in Chicago. And he's like, "Uh, okay, well, I live in Chicago, so that works out. And apparently he lived there for like a year, (laughs) like, like a year or two. And we didn't know. He just was driving down for band practice and then driving back to Chicago. So then we stayed at Jim's uh, apartment. There's a lot of things I could say about it. But what I pieced together is it seemed like he went to a thrift store, picked up some clothes, wore them until they started to get funky, and then just threw them away and went to the thrift store again. So I guess he didn't like to do laundry. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure. So at that same time, Jeremiah considered himself somewhat of a hip hop aficionado. So we were going on stage and Jim would be wearing sometimes a very odd set of clothes that he had gotten from the thrift store. And then (laughs) Jeremiah would have like a Adidas tracksuit on. And then, you know, like it just we looked like I don't think people could figure out what was going on. And neither, (laughs) neither could I at the time. So it was just a very odd combination of people. When was your first show? Uh, want to say late 2000, early 2001. Okay. So I might've seen a really close to her, to like a first show of yours. It was either 2000 or 2001 at the creepy crawl with, uh, I have no idea who he played with probably the conformist or something. Probably the conformists or something. Uh, just because I feel like I would have gone to that show to see them. We walked in. I think you guys were already playing. Well, yeah. That's the story of my life. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? <laughs> Living in their shadow of those hanging cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fucking um, rock stars. But that must have been in... Yeah, I feel like that was... Uh, 2000 and probably 2001. So somewhere around there, there mm-hmm. was a show that was Yowie, The Conformists, and Sheer Accident. And um, that is when uh, the guy from SkinGraft Records ended up seeing us and came and talked to us about joining SkinGraft. Sick. That's so I don't cool. know. I don't know if that was that show or not. Mm-hmm. We, we, we played Creepy Crawl quite a few times. What's the deal with SkinGraft? Well, I'd say it's CEO and founder is Mark Fisher. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's, uh, 
I think he went, if I have this right, he went to high school with someone in Dazzling Killmen. Also, good formative influence for me as well, seeing them a lot of times. Tight. Um, great, great stuff. So, um, he's an artist and does comic books, and his friend uh, Rob Sires does a lot of kind of comic book type of art. I think they just really like the band. I want to say one of them went to school with Nick Sakes or something, I think. Mm-hmm. Um I'm sorry, I haven't like memorized their history. Like a lot of people are going to be mad at me about this, <laughs> but uh, but but they basically decided, hey, I'm going to put out like a, I'm going to do the art for your album, I'm going to put out a comic book associated with it, and we're going to call this a label, and um, it it sort of like took off from there. Yeah, and then they they really I think signed some extremely important bands, especially during the '90s. So, uh, first show was in, you said late 2000. Yeah. It was like a house show at okay. a friend of ours. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I well, ac- actually, Jim, you'll know, it was at Gork's house. Oh shit. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was at Gork's house back when he was in, there's a killer among us. And, uh, it was us, them and, uh, Cine Nomine. Oh my God. That's yeah. awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I had talking to Gork. Uh, it just sounds like there was a really cool scene back then. Uh, I think so. Um, you know, it there was more of a scene then, definitely, than uh, than these days. I hate to sound like that guy, but uh, I've seen this. I have seen the scene uh, <laughs> wax wax and wane multiple times uh, yeah. since I've been playing music here, and uh, you know, I'm I'm waiting for uh, another peak to hit um, after the epidemiological peaks hit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a that's crazy that uh, Cena and Amin I played with Yowie. Uh, how how far back do those guys go? I think around the same time. I'm not exactly sure, but I remember seeing them before we played with them. Yeah, and actually we played with them again with uh, Behold the Octopus one time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, and they're another one of those bands where their their music sounds like sounds more like classical music to me than anything else. In a good way, <laughs> not in the bad way. Yeah, it's funny how many like totally underrated bands there are, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, like yeah. that were here for a while and they just did not get the prominence that they should have. Yeah, I mean, CD Nominee, like especially, I just feel like they just kind of did their thing and it was unbelievably good, and they just sort of like fizzled out and they did everything right, and it just sort of like that's it the end and like some people are left with like these relics it's sort of tragic honestly yeah and they're so good yeah. there's i mean that shit is so like so uh, yeah i was i was debating whether i was going to say this or not but <laughs> i'm going to go out and say it uh they're a band that i've heard people reference many times with great reverence mm-hmm. and i just haven't checked them out yeah i'm sad to say but uh i think i've heard gork talk about it a lot when i was in good look of the hog slaughter with him Mm-hmm. Uh, Valo, Garrett, they all spoke very highly of Cine Nominee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they should. Listening to their record, it sounds like it seems like they're going to be really fucking loud, and they're kind of quiet. Yep, that's a sign of pros, right? That's they crazy. They have to like overwhelm you with volume. They exactly. overwhelm you with talent. They broke the metal rule. <laughs> it's kind of a rule, I feel like. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You can't be at moderate volume. You have to cause. <laughs> yeah. Hearing damage, yeah. No matter how lame what you're playing is, it has to be really loud. Well, that's that's fucking cool. Um, what a good first show. That's great. 
Yeah, it was fun. It was uh, it was on the north side at uh, like Gork's mom's house, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just a lot of fun. Nice. nice. Not a lot of not a lot of experimental music shows were happening on the on the near north side at the time. So, um, when did uh, when did you guys tour Europe for the first time? Two thousand eleven, which is really sad because uh, you know we made our our first album, not expecting anything to happen with it, yeah. and then suddenly we were on a label that like we respected um which honestly i didn't even pay attention to labels very much i probably could have i probably could have named two labels that i cared about and that would have been uh uh alternative tentacles and skin graft right and um we released this album and it like you know some people heard it and we were like what the hell and we got a uh an offer to tour europe for that album which for me at the time um, was like the most crazy, won the lottery, dream come true I could have possibly imagined. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, at that time in my life, I had never uh, really played a show out of town, never left the country. Um, I was in abject poverty uh, as a graduate student. Like couldn't possibly have afforded to go to Europe, and the idea that like um, this booking agent was gonna take care of everything and set up a tour for us was like freaking amazing. And so then we broke up. <laughs> um, well, I guess to be clear, one one member sort of uh, was not in the band anymore for a few years, um, and then so the European tour fell apart. And uh, we tried, uh, Little Pumpkin and I tried for several years to find a new person, and we wrote a bunch of stuff ourselves that later started to turn into the material for Damning with Faint Praise. Um, uh, eventually, uh, I guess I, it's not a surprise, Jeremiah came back to the band, um, and uh, we put together the stuff for Damning with Faint Praise, and as we were getting ready to record... Lil Pumpkin told us that as soon as we're done recording, he's out. And by the way, people were starting to talk about tour again. And I was like, yes, finally, I will be able to do a ritual undoing of having my European tour snatched from my uh, grasp by the cruel hand of fate and uh, whatever other cruel hands were there. And then Lil Pumpkin's like, nope, I'm out. So then we were like, okay, well, now we got to find another guitarist, which we just spent like three and a half years trying to do unsuccessfully. Yeah. Um, and uh, called Chris Troll and he was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So then we uh, trained up Chris <laughs> Troll real quick. I was like, hey, I need you to learn uh, something like uh, 75 or 80 minutes worth of Yowie tunes, uh, <laughs> kind of, so we can go on tour. And he said, okay. And so that, that man is a consummate professional. He just uh, awesome. said, all right, I'm going to take these songs one at a time. Show me what I need to do. Show me what the structure is. And he would sit at home and play many hours at a time until he was good at it. Cool. That's Which is a rarity. Cool. Yeah. Yes. So finally, uh, month after months of doing that with him, uh, we got the tour up and running and finally did it in 2011. And then we uh, went back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and right as as I, I had to book that tour myself, which is not a fun pastime. And as I was finalizing booking the tour, Chris Trull told me, 
that he didn't really want to do it after that. And Jeremiah was uh, not going to do it after that either. So I was okay. Like uh, something about finishing an album and, and setting up a tour in this band makes the band self-destruct every time. <laughs> so people are like, how come it takes you guys so long to write the music? And I, I love that they want to focus on like, you know, the wacky professor with the uh, dry erase board and the equations and <laughs> getting getting everything perfect. But a, a good chunk of it is honestly like I keep having problems with uh, keeping members in the band. Yeah, mm. that's a yeah. whole thing. It t- turns out you really do need band members to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and, you know, the compositions are really dense. They didn't use pedals, Jim or Jeremiah, did they? No, nope. never once. Love it. See that as arbitrary as that is uh that's um that's really special i think now i want to be very clear jim did use one alteration one time uh we have a song called slowly but surly and on that song there is one part where for whatever reason he wrapped a bunch of rubber bands around his fretboard to get like a weird harmonic effect but I I don't think that counts as a pedal. No, that's okay. Yeah. 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 Rubber band. That's, <laughs> uh, that's, that's legit. Yeah. I think, yeah. Now, now Chris Troll used a volume pedal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's important. And, Dynamics are, that's great. Great to have that at your foot. So easy to work with. I really, yeah. Like, I, I, we never, like, created a rule that said no pedals allowed. Right. We just were poor well, you don't need uh, them. But you don't, they're, it's, they're like, I don't know. They're not adding something interesting most of the time. Yeah. I don't find them that interesting. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I thought the pedal, uh, the uh, volume pedal was very, very helpful for the Synchromysticism songs. Yeah, totally. Well, especially, I mean, just playing with dynamics, that is interesting. And that uh, that's important. It's good to, it's good to be able to manage that, especially because you can't, if you're not, if you're doing it with your hand, you have to take your hands off the strings. So a band that sounds the way you guys sound, it sounds so different and you, none of it was, with none of it did you require, uh, you know, an array of buttons and switches. <laughs> no, I mean, and it's it's so funny because like like you're talking about that, that page having the, you know, uh, pedal board as their, <laughs> as their avatar or whatever. Like every time someone would interview us, they'd always be like, so tell me about your sound. What's your rig? What's your pedal board? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And like, like that would usually be somewhere near the beginning. And the answer was Jeremiah borrowed a guitar from someone 14 years ago and he hasn't given it back. <laughs> and, um, and we're using a bass amp that someone from a previous band who like smoked a lot of crack, like left in my basement when he skipped town. Um, <laughs> And we we turn we turn the knobs up high so we can hear, and that's that's our sound. So, like I'm sorry, I wish that I had this story where like we sat down and uh, did did some calculus and like f- figured out some brilliant thing, but it literally was out of pure necessity. That amp was not chosen and carefully curated among uh, hundreds of amps we could have used. It was the one. It was the one that was in the basement. Yeah, getting that amp in the basement, that's like trying to get a band member to practice like. No, and and like what you were saying (laughs) earlier about um, like me not having any, well, us not having any musical training, maybe being like part of the deal. Um, um, Seriously, this happened for Jeremiah. Some guy out of the blue contacted him and was like, hey, I really like your guy's band. I like your sound. I make custom guitars. I'd like to make one for you. 
Um, <laughs> wow. did, did you guys know this? No. So, no. So, so this guy made him this amazing, beautiful, custom guitar exactly how he wanted it to be, which is weird. So it's like got bass pickups in it, but it's a guitar and it's like strung like really weird. I don't know if you ever saw like he strings his guitar like very strangely um, and just shipped it to him in the mail free of charge. And when we went into the recording studio, it sounded like complete garbage. And here's the reason. It's a great guitar. It's like 20 times better guitar than the one he was playing on. It just mm -hmm. like the garbage-ishness of the crap, <laughs> like it is like part of what made that work, right? So yep. like, um, so he'd have like he had a really low string and a really high string like right next to one another, and playing through a very like uh, beautiful instrument and recorded really well, it just sounded horrible. Like we kept saying, it was like, holy shit, this sounds like like geezer butler is jamming with ravi shankar <laughs> like like that doesn't sound like jeremiah like playing his shit that just sounds like two different instruments playing simultaneously <laughs> in a way that doesn't like gel into a coherent whole yeah like it's just yeah. it's just garbage because you could make out the notes too precisely so so is yaoi are you guys you guys don't exist right now we're getting into top secret confidential territory uh-oh um Oh, that's okay. Well, well, <laughs> I am the only original member in Yowie. That's not a surprise. Right now, uh, with especially with all of the COVID stuff, Yowie is essentially a composing and recording project. Um, mm. But I believe that it will become an in-person Meet World project in the nearest future. But uh, we're not. I wouldn't. Uh, we're definitely not broken up. We're super active. Yeah. Um, but. I like to do the big reveal thing. Like we did this with Chris Troll and we did it when Jeremiah came back in the band. I don't know if you guys remember that was at Lemp a long time ago when we played with like Peter Brooksman and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, I like to like, I like to have a big reveal. Yeah. So, uh, so when we come out, um, the next time, um, uh, I would like it. I, I'm not going to tell anybody who's in it yeah. until we're, cool. until we're on stage. Nice. And probably and probably have some stuff recorded. That's exciting. I'm really excited. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be some twists and turns now in the story of Yowie um, that uh, are going to be unexpected compared to what we had in the past. Most of what we had in the past was Jeremiah's in the band, Jeremiah's not in the band, Jeremiah's in the band, Jeremiah's not in the band. We're trying to find somebody else. Uh, holy crap. And then, oh, now, now, now Lil Pumpkin's not in the band. Um <laughs> It was basically like the same three or four people yeah. like circulating back and forth and me trying to hold it together somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, so so now that time has passed. I'm super excited about the about the new lineup and uh, very different things you're going to hear from uh, Yowie 3.0. Yeah, I wish I could say more because like it's really freaking exciting. I mean, Yahweh's getting to that point where it's like, I saw you guys, I was pretty freaking young and it's cool that in some form it sounds like it's, it's persisting by sheer, by, you know, mo mostly your sheer force of will. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to let it die. And there are people who are very interested in it. And so that's really gratifying, even though, you know, to be clear, and I hope I don't sound like I'm panning any of the band members who've been in and out or whatever, 
it's a really demanding mistress, you know, it really truly is. And I'm probably not the easiest person in the world to work with sometimes because like there are sometimes some things that I get like rather insistent upon mm-hmm. uh, when, when it comes down to minutia and details. Yeah. I think that's part of the trick. Like I was joking about the band members being in and out, being part of the deal. But the other part of it is like, I really do want every note uh, in a Yowie song to be um, examined uh, making sure that it is necessary, uh, that there's not too much of it or too little of it, and that it, it has its exact place in the flow. Uh, so that you can see why I had to quit a band that uh, insisted on improvisation. Uh, do you have a, a favorite show that you've played over the years? I am a, I'm a major fan of Cheer Accident, so I loved playing with them. And anytime I could do that, I really loved playing um, in uh, Lyon, France. Mm-hmm. We played uh, uh, this festival that was called Gaffer Music Festival, and we just played with a bunch of bands that I had never heard of before and just got turned on to so many cool bands that way. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's amazing what's happening across the pond and we don't hear about it. I, I absolutely loved that show. On our last tour, we played in a park, uh, in France, like in a gazebo Whoa. as part of like a cultural experience day. And that was like this just wow. idyllic. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It's like, uh, I don't think that's, that would fly in the U S no, no, I, I think I can tell you, I think I can tell you what my favorite show slash tour experience was. So when you're on tour, as you know, it's hard to fill like Sunday and Monday. Right. And we happen to be in Italy and we got set up with the show on a Sunday and so we showed up at this place and it is a it's a building that is half restaurant and half kind of like bar music venue mm-hmm. right so it's Sunday and we're sitting you know we do the thing you get there a few hours early and we're sitting there and um, all of a sudden all of the staff from the restaurant come out and they set up this kind of like buffet line and all of a sudden all these people line up and they start going and we're like the owner had told us they were going to feed us so i was like okay i i guess we'll just get in line and so we go and we both you know we all three of us get a plate of food and we sit down and we didn't know this at the time but this is like a michelin star restaurant like big deal and it was like the best food (laughs) we ever had in our entire lives <laughs> but wait there's more so we're eating we're eating this food yeah. and then the owner who had told us that we were going to uh she was going to feed us said something in italian got really angry and took the plates off of the table <laughs> so we were like oh crap man like i'm sorry like i thought you said you're gonna feed us i thought we you know we're, we could do that i apologize <laughs> it turned out she was mad because that food that she made was for anyone who wanted to come to the show. But oh. we got the special food that was made specifically for us by the chef. Damn. So, yeah, and then, <laughs> and so what What we were doing, and we didn't realize it, this owner of this restaurant and music venue, like, she puts on shows for the community on Sundays where she has her staff from her Michelin restaurant make free food for the community and then they come by and then there's uh, various types of art, you know, it's music for us, but they have poetry, they have like various kinds of things. 
and just everything's free. And she takes, she apparently makes a good living off of her restaurant and she like gives that back to the community, feeds the community like amazing food and then gives them art every Sunday. And so like we got to play uh, in this place. Like, so what was so great about it, it was just us, but like just the approach to that versus like the United States, like you get two trade tickets for PBR and you're going to sleep <laughs> wherever you sleep in the van and screw you guys. And oh, you know, God. like, yeah. like, the the difference in how that felt yeah. um, was like really moving to me. Yeah, yeah, that's and awesome. So there were like a lot of shows like that where like um, the appreciation for like what we were doing was so like genuine and heartfelt and so radically different from what I was used to uh, receiving uh, back home. Not that like everybody here is a jerk, but certainly from the, uh, the, like the venue and the, like, we're here to make money capitalism side of it, having music be more about music and community and culture there. Um, like that was like, um, just, uh, just couldn't be more different than a lot of what I had experienced, uh, playing music all these years here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Honestly, they just, um, they just kind of have it figured out a little more. Like even these DIY, like kind of squatter punk houses and stuff like um, they've got it all figured out where the band comes in and it's organized. Whereas yeah. here it's always like, you have to show up by 4 PM. The load in will be at five thirty. The sound check will be at seven. And then you, you show up and nobody's there and then it takes forever. And then um, at the end of the night, nobody thought about where you're going to sleep and you have to like beg, beg strangers to sleep on their floor. Like, like <laughs> yeah. the whole thing that always happens, like, and you, you gotta ask yourself like, hey, doesn't this music venue have like bands a lot? Like, did you guys not run into this problem yesterday and last week? <laughs> um, but in, in Europe, they have it figured out. They, they have like quarters set up and there's people who come in and they cook for you. And it's just a, just a different, a different thing. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so I hope it doesn't sound snobby, but no, uh, but all. just like, hey, America, let's step up our game a little bit. Yeah. So that was part one of our interview with Sean O'Connor of Yowie. I want to thank Sean and Yowie for letting us use their music in this podcast. To listen to their music or to check them out further, go to yowie.bandcamp.com or to their label page at skingraftrecords.com. You have been listening to Grind the Arch, Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene, hosted by Caleb True and Jim Fitzpatrick. This episode has been mixed by me, Caleb True. The Grind the Arch logo was designed by Julia Hahn. To listen to part two of this interview, and to check out more episodes, visit anchor.fm slash grindthearch. If you have questions or comments, we can be reached at grindthearch at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.